Welcome to Selfish Security Chat Chat, episode 256 for the 6th of January, 2017. I'm Chester Wisniewski with Paul Ducklin this week. Happy New Year, Duck. Thank you, Chester. Chat Chat 2 to the power 8. Yeah, and we'd be even further along if I hadn't taken a little bit of a break over the, the December holidays. Of course, after all the, the, the mayhem over the holidays, I, I'm sure that we're not going to try to cover all the security stories that we necessarily didn't cover here on the podcast. Although if you're interested in all that information, it's available over on our Naked Security blog. But now that it's the first week of January, everything is about CES, uh, which is no longer short for the Consumer Electronics Show. It is literally requested to be called CES because that is now the name of it. Oh, is that like IBM is no longer International Business Machines? Yes, it's it's similar to that, I think. And, and the S in CES does not stand for security, which is why <laughs> neither of us are currently in Las Vegas. In fact, maybe it, it would have an N in, wouldn't it? It would be like not about security, it seems, to judge by some of the stuff that uh, I read today in John Dunn's article on naked security. There are some astonishing IoT devices, a haptic hairbrush, that pairs with your phone and there's an app that tells you whether you're brushing your hair in the right way. Yours for $200. Yeah, I think this idea of adding, you know, remote controllability into everything, uh, somebody this morning was tweeting about uh, the ability to integrate Amazon's Alexa service, which is the AI behind their Echo product into your Ford car where like you could say, Hey, uh, she, whose name, who shouldn't be spoken on podcasts. Could you please start my car and set the heater to, you know, eight degrees centigrade, please. Um, some of these things seem like a pretty darn scary idea. It does more and more data that's being collected that is directly generated by activities that are in your life that are actually being shared with an app or with a server somewhere. It's hard to imagine how it's a good idea just to collect that data and not worry about it. Yeah, it's fertile ground for teaching people how to hack these things. I mean, it was one of the talks that I had uh, mentioned in the podcast from Virus Bulletin in, in 2016 was uh, this woman had you know been been hacking one of these Bluetooth uh, toothbrushes. And it, it was kind of good, you know, a, a training process, right? Like, how do we disassemble the Android app to figure out the communication protocol, etc.? And that same technique could arguably be applied to hacking that Ford or that Tesla that you learn from hacking the hairbrush, whether there's PII or not. This is not theoretical about, you know, some of the dangers uh, of these devices. In fact, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission filed suit against uh, D-Link uh, this today uh, regarding the, the, the idea that the there are some of their routers and IP cameras and things were so insecure and hackable that it actually presented a genuine privacy risk to their customers. And it'll be very interesting to see how that starts to pan out because it's been sort of a wild west free for all to add internet connectivity to anything and everything with seemingly no liability. And it sounds like some government regulators are starting to think twice about that. So it sounds as though the, the idea of that FTC suit is along the lines of could have, should have. Yeah. You've got all this sensitive stuff that this product deals with, and you clearly didn't do what any expert would consider be the very basic things that need to be done to provide a safe working environment. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that uh, to Netgear after the little fiasco they had at the end of last year. Uh, fortunately, they did fix it, but that was a a command injection bug in 
I think, 11 different versions of their router where pretty much if you could get somebody to click on a specific URL that had routerlogin.com at the beginning, which Netgear always translates into the IP number of your router so that an attacker doesn't have to guess that you're 192.168.17.3. They get that for free. And then you could just basically put a CGI bin in the URL and then pretty much put any command on the end and get it executed. But it just goes to show that we're still making that kind of very elementary blunder in devices that, although they're low price, easy to buy, easy to use, everyone's got one these days at home, they're absolutely vital to the security of your household network. Well, I think that's part of the problem here is part of the problem is our addiction to cheap. And and, and this isn't just about, you know, let's be clear, it's not about Netgear and D-Link any more than many other vendors. I mean, obviously, they're the ones that uh, have been in the news in the last few weeks. I mean, just before that, there was the, you know, talk, talk routers and the German routers that were taken over by the Mirai botnet. And I mean, this is not, uh, this is a continuing thing with many, many different vendors, but I think that addiction to cheap is leading to some of this. I mean, I'm afraid that, uh, events like CES where it's all about building the hype about how cool is that are not really helping. Many of us have bought into the, how cool is that? And now we've gotten burned. And speaking of things where, you know, we buy in initially and then we find out later they weren't secure, but at least maybe they take action to rectify that situation. Let's talk a minute about uh, WhatsApp. And and for once, we're not actually talking about the security at WhatsApp itself, which uh, last year, of course, adopted this signal protocol, which has been lauded by encryption experts for uh, its protection of information and privacy, but rather about some scammers who have decided that WhatsApp's popularity makes it the place for action now. I mean, we, we've moved from scams being only an email to moving into SMSs. And a few years back, we used to talk a lot about these types of things uh, operating through Facebook chat. And now we're seeing them in WhatsApp. We are indeed. This is kind of like a, uh, a Facebook scam, I guess. The idea is that there's a bait and switch and you have to share this with N of your friends. We actually had, depending on whether we used an Android or an iOS device, when we experimented with this today, we were either expected to pass this the, the scam message on to either 8 or 15 further recipients. The background to the story is that it's meant to be a free Wi-Fi service that WhatsApp allegedly is going to be providing. When you look at the message, it's, it's obviously badly written. If, if you're half cautious, you should realise that this doesn't look like something WhatsApp did. It looks like something that somebody else has promoted. But of course, the message came from your friend, so it kind of seems harmless enough to click the link. There isn't actually any malware involved that we could find. And of course, the problem is, if nothing else, you're just setting bad standards for the community as a whole if you get involved as the spreading vector in scams of this sort. You're essentially spamming your friends, which is not really fair to them. And because of the the way the links are set up in this scam, you're helping these crooks make affiliate marketing fees, essentially from clicks and from downloads that were obtained under false pretenses. Fooling around because, hey, it doesn't involve an actual malware infection. It's not real phishing and no one's going to get my password. So why should I care? We have to get it into our heads that that's not a good enough attitude anymore. 
and that's just today. That's just this one, right? What about the one that copycats this tomorrow that actually does have malicious stuff? We we've seen, you know, this type of thing lead to very bad places down the road with other previous iterations of this. And there's no reason to believe that uh, all of them will be as innocent as only stealing money from marketing companies. And indeed, and if you're one of the people who's actually clicking the button that acts as the, if you like, the spreading engine for what would otherwise require an actual malware infection, then really you are part of the problem and not part of the solution. That's true. You and I were discussing uh, in general kind of how we felt about what happened in 2016. And of course, uh, we've seen all the um, um, year in review stories. We've seen all the predictions, all this other stuff. And I don't really like to do those things. But I did see a theme emerging of many people kind of calling it the year of ransomware, especially those in the press. And I would argue those that are less technical. Whereas those of us who have been researching this, of course, know that ransomware has been around for more than three years. In fact, the, by my count, the three-year anniversary was in September of 2016 of CryptoLocker, uh, the, um, the, the beginning of the recent wave of ransomware. Of course, we know it goes back 30 years, and we've talked about that before. But uh, was it really the year of ransomware? Because then what I'm thinking about, you know, the year ending with news about the DNC hack, but including things like a billion plus a half a billion, maybe with some overlap of Yahoo accounts being stolen. Uh, is ransomware really our biggest worry? I mean, clearly ransomware is disruptive and annoying, and the, the San Francisco Muni can tell you about that. But that's pretty different than having all your data dumped or losing a billion and a half records, which if the estimates with Yahoo are anywhere close to correct, may reduce their price when Verizon buys them by a billion dollars or blow up the entire deal. I like to think of it as the year of the data breach notification because you look at those giant yahoo stories they happened three years before what possible advice can you give to somebody who was a victim of a breach that happened three years ago well change your password if you haven't already obviously you've got to do that but it's <laughs> there's a little bit of a sense that maybe you're months and months and months too late i i'd put in a, a an argument for a little bit of the year of two factor as well. Um, in many of these breaches, there were passwords or hashes that were stolen, and those would be useless if your account had two-factor authentication enabled, which is an, an interesting positive spin on what you can do to protect yourself even against past breaches. If Even if you didn't change your password since 2013, if you had a second factor enabled in 2016, I won't be able to log in as you. I just personally noticed it, especially the last three months or so, and I guess it's because I I finally had some personal time off in December to play some games and talk to friends and play with some new apps and programs that are out there and just kind of not work, you know, 10 hours a day. And when I did, I noticed almost every site I was signing up for to try out a new thing or a new app or whatever, they almost all had an option for two-factor authentication. Many of them had options to verify over the telephone or other things as well, rather than maybe just the Google Authenticator app. and as much arguing and complaining as I saw people making about SMSs broken as a second factor, uh, anything more than just a password is a big improvement. And all of those things will protect you against many of these breaches. So, you know, we're, I, I feel like we're getting better. At least there's people who want to be secure have more options than ever. That makes me actually feel like we're finishing in an upbeat way. And I absolutely think you're right. Because if you look back three to five years, and, you know, you look at some of the articles we were writing back then on naked security, 
when we would pitch two-factor authentication or urge people to try it, the kind of comments we'd get were along the lines of, oh, it's too much hassle. You can't expect me to do that. I don't always have my phone with me. I couldn't be bothered. I've got a strong password. Why should I care? But recently, towards the end of 2016, Maria wrote a whole series of, of articles about A, why 2FA matters, and B, how to enable it on any number of different services. We thought that would be a, that would be you know, a good thing to popularize. And everyone was jumping in to say, yes, we, this is a feature we should adopt because, as you say, it doesn't make everything perfect, but it's sure better than having a single password that could let the crooks rule your account for years and years and years. I think that's a great sign. Yeah, I do as well. And while you were talking, I looked and I currently have 16 accounts that I'm using Google Authenticator for. And I don't even have to trust Google, right? Because it's a time-based token and it's just a matter of uh, storing those seeds safely. Well, don't forget that the Sophos Mobile Security for Android and iOS, those apps include an authenticator as well as a QR code scanner. Uh, which when you scan, scan the QR code, instead of just taking it to the URL, it'll check to see whether it's good or bad first. If you do need an authenticator app, try the Sophos one. It's quite cool. Thanks for that, Duck. And with that, we'll conclude Chat Chat 256. As always, all of the latest security news is at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available via RSS. They're on iTunes, they're in the TuneIn app, and over at soundcloud.com slash sophosecurity. And until next time, stay secure.